Father, as we bow before you tonight, we thank you for the opportunity we have to freely study your word, to freely gather together in your name. Father, I pray that you allow the Holy Spirit to lead us into the truth of your word tonight. Help us then to apply it to our lives and to share it with others this week. Father, thank you for loving us. It's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen. Uh, Tonight we're going to be looking at the second half of this study of Jonah. We'll be looking at chapters 3 and 4. Last week I successfully got through two chapters and I wasn't sure I was going to be able to do that, but it happened and we were only a few minutes past 7. So I want to try to to replicate that tonight and get through the last last two chapters. Um, To kind of recap what we did a little bit last week, there were there are two commissions given to Jonah. The same commission given two different times. What was God's first commission to Jonah to do? What, what did God command him to do? To go to Nineveh, okay? Why Nineveh? What, what, it said their sin was exceedingly great. What was wrong in the city of Nineveh? What was going on that there, the evil was just a stench to God's nostrils? What, what was going on? They, they were very violent people. When they conquered someone, they killed everybody in the city. They made a pyramid out of the skulls. They skinned people alive and hung the skin on the walls. I mean, it was just really, you know, the, the one that just got me, they just grabbed their tongue by, with some tongs and just yanked until the tongue came out of their mouth. Yeah, I just can't even imagine that. But um, God told Jonah to go. What did Jonah do, though? What? He ran. Okay, where did he run to? Yeah, well, he ran to the beach. He ran down to the shore and got on a ship and he was trying to get to Tarshish, and that didn't happen. So that, that's kind of what we looked at last week, but to help us kind of crawl into Jonah's situation, no pun intended. Well, yeah, there is a pun intended. I, re- I wrote that intentionally. Um, to not necessarily go back to where he's sloshing around in the gastric juices for three days and three nights. I I won't really try to revisit that too much tonight. Um, But to kind of look at the book of Jonah, probably Jonah himself was the person who wrote this this book. Most theologians believe that Jonah actually penned this. And Jonah, just like Moses and other inspired penmen of, of Scripture, recorded his own faults which is evidenced in these writings, they testified to God's glory and not their own. You know, if God had not been directing Jonah to write everything that he did, if, if, if I were doing it and I were writing Morris's story, I, I wouldn't be prone to write about my disobedience to God and my sin and my hard-headedness and my stiff-necked attitudes. And I probably wouldn't do that. I'd try to hit some of the highlights instead of the lowlights. But the fact that it was written in this way is a testimony to God's glory. And Jonah did this. He wrote this to testify to God's glory, not, not to his own. So I think that's an important thing to, to note. But it also contains a very remarkable instant of, of, of this being recorded chiefly for the sake of Jesus Christ. As you recall last week, if you were here last week, we read the passage where Jesus was saying that the people were calling out for a miraculous sign. And he said, I'll give you no sign except the sign of Jonah. So Jonah happens so that scripture would be fulfilled. And we've gone through that, you know, in sermons in the past. These things happen so that scriptures would be fulfilled. Jesus had the example of Jonah because Jonah had already happened. Okay, so it was there intended for the sake of Christ. And we know that Jonah was a type, just a shadowy figure of Christ, but a type of Christ because he was buried in the deep, in the belly of a great fish for three days and three nights, and then spit out, vomited out on the shore. And we're going to see tonight that the result of that was a restoration of a group of people with a, with a holy God. So we see that, that type of, of Christ there. We also see, we'll see tonight that God's mercy, we'll see God's mercy both in pardoning repenting sinners 
through Nineveh's response to God. But we also see that God bears with imperfect saints like Jonah and Morris and a host of others that I'm not going to name. You know who you are. Okay. So Jonah is coming out of a three-tiered discipline session from the Lord. Now, I'll ask you to turn to Hebrews 12. We're going to visit this again just briefly tonight. Talked about this last week. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 12, talks about a three-tiered discipline that God uses us to teach us, to draw us, and to lead us because of his love for us. So in Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But God disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping heads and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. So Jonah is coming out of this three-tiered discipline session from the Lord, and the, the three tiers are discipline, which comes from, and it involves, positive teaching and training. Um, and, and he leads us sometimes through trouble, Okay. The second thing is rebuke. Rebuke involves correction or reprimand. The third thing is punishment. And the punishment is always the logical consequence of disobedience to God's command. In other words, God's wrath. That's, that's the punishment. So as we looked last week in Jonah and his disobedience to God, there, those three tears were evidenced in Jonah's situation. First of all, there was the discipline. We see that God's discipline of Jonah in the boat was what? What did God send against Jonah that disciplined him? The first thing that happened. The storm. Yeah, there was a, tem- there was a tempestuous storm that just beat the ship to the point that the sailors were throwing everything overboard. They were crying out to their gods. They looked for Jonah. He was downstairs asleep. You know, he's in the bottom of the boat asleep. Again, he was running from God just through sleep. And they called out to him and said, how can you do this? And call out to your God and who are you? And um, so in that, we see that the rebuke came from the mariners. When they came down and said, how dare you be asleep? You big dummy, don't you know we're all about to die? Oh, that was paraphrased. Okay, that, that. I didn't read that specifically in here, but it's basically what was going on. And then the punishment was what? What was his punishment? At being thrown overboard and, huh? Yeah, being swallowed by the great fish, and he was sloshing around in a mucus lined bag for three days and three nights. No. That's, that's pretty bad. Can't imagine. Okay. Jonah told the mariners to throw him into the sea, again, wanting to run him from God through death. He just simply said, it'd be better for me to die. But we're going to see that several other times tonight as we look into the story. So let's begin in Jonah chapter 3. I'm going to read chapter 3. We're going to work through that a little bit, then I'll read chapter 4 and we'll finish up. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Now, back up and remember where Jonah is. He had prayed. He had repented. He confessed that, God, you are God's salvation comes from you. I will sacrifice. I will return to your temple. 
and God caused the fish to vomit him out on, on dry land. So as soon as that happened, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against, against it in the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree, the king and his nobles let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them all call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned away from their evil, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Okay, chapter 3. First of all, we see that God repeated his command, his commission to Jonah. Was it important for God to repeat this to Jonah? hearing crickets yeah it must be because he did it good answer yeah everybody do this okay yes it was important now why was it important for God to repeat the commission to Jonah yeah to remind Jonah this is what I called you to do the first time but it's also to tell him you're still part of the plan you see, what if Jonah had been vomited out on dry land and then he got up and washed himself off and said, you know what, I think I better go to Nineveh, but God is silent. And he goes to Nineveh. There, there's a couple of ways that we can mess up. To not do what God has called us to do or to do something that God has told us not to. So for those, those reasons, to remind Jonah what his commission was, but also to, to, to validate this is still your call. Go to Nineveh. And what was Jonah's response this time? He got up and went. Okay. Now, when, when, when I heard this when I was a kid and growing up, I thought, yeah, oh, cool. Okay, so he, he, he strolled into Nineveh. Mm. It wasn't until I started studying this that I really started, and I looked at the, the, the geographical uh, area, he was spit out somewhere on the eastern coast of the Mediterranean. He had to be because the fish spit him out on dry land. And that's where he was. And to Nineveh is approximately 500 miles from somewhere that he would have been on the coast. And it was desert, mountainous, rough terrain that he had to go across. Now... Nothing is mentioned in here about frequent flyer miles that he could have cashed in. Okay, there's no Greyhound buses. There's no taxis that he could hail, no public transportation. So Jonah struck out on foot, being obedient to God. And if he's walking at what we have discussed for, in so many contexts here at Crosspoint, if he's walking three miles an hour, to cover 500 miles at three miles an hour would take 167 hours. Okay. Basically, 17 days to make that walk. And that's if he walked 10 hours a day. Okay. Um, the long hike. Uh, so Jonah was serious this time about following God's design and following through on this commission. For a little while. So he walked, if he, again, if he walked 10 hours a day, three miles an hour, it took him 17 days to get there. Once he gets to Nineveh, he might have been a little bit overwhelmed by what he saw. We don't know if he had ever seen Nineveh before. 
But Nineveh was a city that most archaeologists believe now encompassed about 350 square miles. It would take three days to walk around Nineveh. Okay. Big city. God says in, in, in chapter 4, verse 11, indicated there were 120,000 who did not know their right hand from their left hand. Now, many places that I, I read about this over the last couple of weeks, that's an indication they're talking about infants, babies. No, because a grown man knows his right hand from his left. I started to do right hand and left, but right hand and left. Get the right one here. Um, but infants don't do that. Infants don't know which is the right and left. So the indication seems to be that there was 120,000 babies in Nineveh, which would probably then put the population somewhere around 600,000. Big city. So Jonah gets there and noticed that God had given Jonah zero, nada, no leeway in what to say. God said, you tell them what I tell you to do. So he's very, very specific. And, and we've seen in, in Scott's teaching through, through Exodus, we, we've, we've heard that, that truth presented multiple times of God being very, very specific. Very, very specific. The laws that God gave to Moses, the design for the tabernacle was very specific. Why? Huh? Yeah, God had a plan. This wasn't just left open for human interpretation. The message that Jonah had to give to the, the people of Nineveh wasn't open to human interpretation, just like the building of the tabernacle was never open to human interpretation. And neither was God's laws that were given very specific because of God's plan. It had to be done that way. So Jonah goes into the city and it, it, says, in, it, it says in chapter 3, verse 4, Jonah began going into the city, going a day's journey, period. So now the way I read that is that he walked into the city for, for a full day. And then he said, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And I believe that's what he's talking about. That he walked a full day into the city and then he began to declare. And then I thought, you know, why would he walk a full day? Why, why didn't he just, when he got to the gate, start talking? Well, again, you remember the condition that he may have been in that I talked about last week at the very end? What happens to some, What happens to anything that's in the belly of a fish for a long period of time? What does the gastric juices do to them? Turns them pure white. You know, if you catch a big fish, it's got a smaller fish in it. If it's been there any length of time at all before it's completely digested, it is stark white. Okay, so very possibly... Doesn't say that in scripture, but possibly Jonah walks into the city, snow white. And yeah, people are laughing like, what in the world happened to you? And he's walking through the city. Don't you think walking a full day's journey into the city, by that time, it, you know, he, he's got a following kind of like Forrest Gump. You remember the Forrest Gump movie when he's running? He gets, he gets a whole group of people following him. You know, so Jonah's walking through, not saying anything, and there's probably people following along thinking, who is this Yahoo that just came into town? What's going on? What's his story? You know, so then he gets in, and by this time, I'm sure he's got quite a following, and he stops and he, he declares, yet 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Called out very clearly. Now, something that we do know about Nineveh through archaeological studies is that Nineveh was an extremely religious group of people. Now, we've talked about, you know, the Ninevites, the, the Assyrians being extremely cruel and what they did and tortured people and killed everybody. But they were also a very religious people. They had gods 
And they had idols set up to their gods of the sun, gods of the moon, god of wind, god of trees, god of rain, god of the earth, god of the sky. Everything they could think of, they had a god to, and they had an idol set up. And they were very, very religious people. And they were also terrified of their gods because they believed that their gods dwelt among them, walking around in human form, had very personal relationships with them, but were also very jealous, very angry, very vengeful gods. Okay, so when they hear a message like, yet 40 days, God will destroy this whole place. Nineveh will be overthrown. And the word overthrown is the same, basically it's the same word phrase that, that talks about what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. And when Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed, it was wiped out. There was no evidence that life even existed. God did that so cleanly. So that's what's, what's being threatened here. So when a very possibly snow-white, bleached-out man swimming in fish gastric juices for three days and three nights walked into town, walked a full day's journey, and then declared, yet in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown, people listened. And what did they do? Did they hesitate in their response? No. Their response was immediate. It says they believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the least of them to the greatest. Even when the king heard about Jonah's statement, the king got up off of his throne immediately, took off his robe, put on sackcloth, called for a fast, sat down in the ashes. Then he made his own proclamation. And keep in mind, he does this in submission and repentance. He's hearing God's word and he's, he's taking this position of repentance and submission. In verse 7 of chapter 3, the king issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water. Let, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil. Let everyone turn from his evil, from his evil way and the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Note also, the king never once denied who they were. In fact, he didn't deny their sin. He said, turn from our evil ways. He didn't try to waffle. He didn't say, we know some of these guys over here are a lot worse than I am, so I, they need to do it, but I don't. No, he said, we are an evil people. He confessed. And he said, turn from the violence that is in our hands. He didn't say, you know, some of these people over here, that, guy's the one, that, that guy over there, he's the dude that rips tongues out. And on this other one's over here that skins people alive. I don't, I don't do that. I, I watch and participate, but I'm, I'm really not that bad. He didn't do that. He said, we are to turn from our evil ways. We are to turn from the violence that is in our hands. He confessed the sin of the people. And he owned that. Pages aren't cooperating. There we go. Then God responded. What was God's response to the king and the people? And the king even said, put sackcloth on the animals. So he's like, we're, we're going to cover all of our bases. We believe God so fully. We want everything covered. And, and note also, the king didn't put a limit on it. Okay, we're going to fast for about three hours. He didn't say that. He didn't say we're going to fast for three days. He said we're going to fast, period. Nobody's to eat. Nobody's to drink. It was a complete fast. He didn't put an end on it. He said, God, we're going to do this, and hopefully you'll recognize our sincerity in turning from our evil and from our violence. And in response to that, what did God do? He relented. Verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented 
of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Question, does this mean that God changed his mind? Look up the word relent. That's one of the, that's one of the definitions is changing mind. Does that mean that God changed his mind because he relented? Ashley's sitting over here going, okay. No, he didn't change his mind because folks, listen, if God had changed his mind, that means he didn't know what the Ninevites' response would be. He thought, I want to destroy these people and they they, they responded. He was like, ooh, ooh. Man, I didn't expect that, so, hmm, I guess I better back up. God didn't do that. God did not change his mind. God knew what their response was going to be. Because if God had changed his mind, folks, he wouldn't be a sovereign God. But he is. Keep in mind what, the, what, what Ben pointed out when we are going through toward the, you know, toward the end of the book of John, talking about the crucifixion, you know, Jesus wasn't hanging on the cross thinking, man, not, I hope somebody gets this. You know, I hope this really gets into somebody's life and it really can change somebody because I'm really not sure. No, Jesus knew every single person that he was dying for on the cross. Why? Because their name was already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We see that in Scripture. He knew every person. He already knew what the, what the outcome was going to be. Same thing here. God knew the Ninevite people were going to respond to his call. So we see once again a beautiful picture of God's mercy and his grace being acted out against an evil, violent, vicious people based upon their response to a holy God. So we see that grace and mercy acted out once again in the Old Testament. Incredible picture. Okay, now let's look in chapter 4. We end in chapter 3 saying, God relented, he did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat on the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do. Well, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, we see another response from Jonah in, in, this, in this next act of this story. The response from Jonah toward God, who had responded in grace and mercy toward a repentant people in Nineveh, and Jonah responded how? He was angry. In fact, he appears to be lashing out at God in his prayer. Now, let me paraphrase, bring it into today's language a little bit. He might have been saying something like, see, I told you so. 
I knew that you were not, you were not going to destroy them. That's why I didn't want to come here. But no, you made me come and make a fool out of myself. Thanks a lot, God. Might be something kind of like what he's saying. But he's certainly saying it with that attitude. But yet in the midst of that, Jonah is still able to speak incredible truth about God's very nature. The last part of verse 2, he says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's exactly what God just did. But instead of worshiping God, Jonah's angry. Or even in his anger, he's able to speak truth, but it's, it's not getting through. Okay, it's kind of thick up here, and he's just not getting it. Now, we see two types of prayers in Jonah. In chapter 2, from the belly of the fish, in adversity, we see, we see a submissive, humble, repentant prayer, recognizing God as the only way to salvation. And then in Nineveh, we see a prayer of jealousy, pride, Fear of being seen as a false prophet. And he's confronting God rather than seeking his face. We see he replies again in verse 3. Therefore now, O Lord, take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. He made a decision it would be better for him to be dead than be alive and again, maybe face the, the, the idea, somebody comes up and says, lot you know, 40 days has gone by, we're not dead. So Jonah was fearing that, that ridicule. This may sound kind of crazy by most standards. But let's be honest here for a minute. Have you ever been in the same position? Have you ever found yourself in that place where Jonah was? Seeing someone that you believed really did not deserve God's grace. Someone pulls out in front of you and you honk at them and you call them an idiot. Pretty much the same place where Jonah was. Isn't it? Everybody gently do this. It, it's painful to do it, but it is. Because that's, that, that's who we are. That's what we do. In our human nature, we do that. Maybe not with the flair that Jonah presented it, but it didn't make it any less real. God really nailed me with that one this week. In fact, this afternoon. It's a real gut check. It can be a painful one. Yeah, Brad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, so somebody that had their grandparents skinned alive by the Ninevites, and then they meet Jonah, and are like, oh, you're the jerk that went and told them about God? Mm, thanks a lot. Now, so, you know, that's a very real possibility. You know, so there's just, there, there's a lot of stuff going on that, you know, when, when, we, when we let human condition and our human thoughts and our human fears overpower God's design, and take precedent. We, we just keep making a mess of things. And, and that's where we see Jonah. God's reply in verse 4, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah's response to God's question, I'll quote Ben, crickets. It's kind of like my first question tonight. Nothing. Jonah didn't even respond. But instead, he went out of the city and sat down on top of the hill, across from it, pouting. It was kind of like this. 
I want to sit on this. Now, get a picture of Jonah sitting on the east side of the city. It's his only response to God. He didn't answer God. And it says that he sat on the east side of the city, on the side of the hill, to see what was going to happen to the city. Because he was still hoping that in 40 days, that place would be demolished. It's what he's hoping for. You know, he delivered God's message. But he sits down on the east side of the city hoping for God to rain down fire at least on somebody. You know, God at least hit the king or hit the dude with the tongs that rips out the tongues. Do, do something. That's what he's wanting. He builds a booth so he'll be under the shade and he waits. God's response to Jonah, though, is a response of a gentle and loving and compassionate father willing to tolerate this child's temper tantrum. Ever been there? As parents, have you ever seen the temper tantrum? I know all of you have perfect children. As a child, did you ever throw a temper tantrum? Oh, I got a hand. <laughs> I'm not going to tell who it was either. Okay. Um, and, and the temper tantrum is throwing yourself on the floor, beating your hands, kicking your feet, screaming at the top of your lungs. And that happens at Walmart with everybody looking. <laughs> Look at that child over there, you God provides a gentle and loving response. He caused the plant to grow up over Jonah and to shade his head. And Jonah's response to that was what? He was happy. He was glad. Yay, there's a plant. I get some shade. Then God provided a worm to chew the stem so that the plant withered overnight. And then Jonah was, again, what? Angry. He goes from, he goes from happy to angry just like that. You know, it's amazing. Sounds pretty familiar. Okay. But once again, he was so upset that he wanted to die. This dude's got a real death issue going on. You know, you think about how many times has he seen, said, just let me die, just let me die, just let me die. You know, again, all of it is about running from God. But in verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Over a plant, really? I mean, I'm, I hadn't looked in my garden this morning after... The storm last night, I looked a little bit last night, and it looked pretty beaten down by two and a half inches of rain and a little bit of hail at our house, not bad. Uh, don't know what it looks like today. But, I mean, if all the plants died that I've planted and we didn't have a garden this year, I was like, okay. I wouldn't be angry enough to die over that. You know, it's just not that important. But Jonah was. He's got an attitude, you know, he has copped an attitude. He wants, he wants everything around him. He wants to die, even himself. Kill the Ninevites, kill me, just kill whoever. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, for which you did not make grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Now, I love that last little phrase, and also much cattle. And I think it was there because God was reminding Jonah, you know, you're upset about this plant that died. Could you at least be upset for the cattle that didn't get killed? Maybe not the Ninevites, but hey, there's a lot of, there's a lot of livestock there, so at least have some pity for them. But that is such a gracious and mercy-filled perspective that our God has. 
that Jonah, who did not plant the plant that grew, nor tend it, nor garden it, would pity the plant, and yet he would rather see an entire city destroyed, a city that included 120,000 babies, most likely about 600,000 people in the city. God demonstrated an incredible mercy and grace toward an evil people because they had heard from an all-powerful, white, hot, holy God. And they turned from their sin, and they confessed. They repented, and God forgave them. And that's the end of the story. And as, as I was thinking about that, I thought, hmm, okay. To close this out, to note that this is the end of the story that's told here, we don't know whether Jonah ever got it or not. We don't know whether he ever got up off, of, off the side of the mountain after 40 days and the city is flourishing and they're learning about God and they're worshiping. We don't know what's going on. We don't know if he got up and, you know, kicked rocks all the way down the hill, walking away. We don't know any of that. As far as we know, the story ends there, and we can only conjecture what might have happened. Why would God end the narrative at that point of time? Why didn't he tell us the rest of the story like Paul Harvey would always tell us the rest of the story? Why didn't God tell us the rest of the story, do you think? He had made his point, exactly. God is God. He, he sends a message. When people respond, he saves them. He, 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 he doesn't relent, but he pours out his grace and mercy. That was the point. What would have happened if we, if God had continued the narrative and we knew how Jonah turned out? How do you think that would be different for us today? Yeah. Yeah, the focus would be in a different place than where it is now. One of the things that I thought of was, well, if we knew how Jonah turned out, then we'd always expect Jonah's outcome. Okay. But I think God ended it here to show us today in 2012 that God is going to do what God chooses to do in each of our lives in individual circumstances of an individual people. God is not limited in what he's going to do. I think it's the same, same reason that we don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Okay, We, we hear about the thorn in the flesh, but it's never told what it was. Because I think if God would have demonstrated and revealed what that thorn in the flesh was, we would think that God's answer for Paul would only apply to that situation. But God's answers apply to every one of us in our individual needs, our individual circumstances, our individual personalities, our individual gifts, our individual pain, our individual joys. God works individually with each one of us. Bottom line, the result of any given situation in our lives is in the hands of God it's his plan, it's his design, and he chooses to use us. And this was, the, this was the part that was very humbling to me this week. He chooses to use us as vehicles in his kingdom design, in his kingdom work. Just as he used a stiff-necked, rebellious, angry, vengeful, hard-headed, bleached-out white dude named Jonah to deliver a message and people were reached and even if he never got the end, the end of the story he was used by God and he was part of God's plan so God uses us in his kingdom work here and around the world and his plan hadn't changed in that yes sir
You know, and I've, I've used the statement numerous times that every single person that God used in mighty ways in Scripture, except for one, blew it big time. Every one of them. You can't name anybody in Scripture other than Jesus Christ that didn't blow it. Jonah did too. So because of that, there's hope for Morris. There's hope for every one of us, that on our worst days, God can use us. Well, absolutely. That's true. All right. Chuck. I mean, when I see John, you see the solid work of the mighty God in the storm with the fish, with the plant, with the worm, and his plan for these people is serious. But you, know, you have, during this time, Jonah's going and preaching to them that Israel is fallen, that Jeroboam II, I mean, he's an evil king, that they're, they're going to worship God, worshiping all sorts of kings. Any other word tonight? Great comments. Okay. A couple of minutes over, but let's close with prayer. 
Father, we do bow before you, and again, thank you for your presence here. Father, thank you for revealing the truth of your word to us. Father, thank you for letting us see that you are truly a holy God who has a design that's a perfect design. And your design is always accomplished. Your purposes are always accomplished because you are a sovereign God. And in our frailties, in our sin, in our stiff-necked ways, Father, you can still, and you do still, use us. Father, it's my prayer that as a people, we will be able to, to glean truth from, from all over your word. Like in the story of Jonah, where where we see there could have been a different response by Jonah and to rejoice in your work and in your majesty and in your sovereignty and in your salvation. Father, help us see that today and rejoice in the salvation of everyone who comes to know you. Father, help us have the excitement that comes from knowing you that we want to share the truth of who Jesus Christ is with every person we come in contact with. To be excited about knowing you and share you with those around us. Father, help us be a people who listen, a people who hear, and then a people who speak truth to those around us. Father, I thank you for those who are here tonight. And Father, I pray your blessings upon each person that's here. Father, help us go from this place and through this week and lift you high. Father, help us see you as larger and each one of us smaller. For that's your design and that's how you will be glorified. Father, I pray that we will do everything that we can within our powers to honor and glorify you and give you thanks, not only for what you do, but for who you are. And it's in Jesus' name I pray these things. Amen.